Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think one of your passions and missions is to tell people to embrace their circumstance and find a way to create value out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome back to Fill in the Blanks. You guys know that I have a commitment to bringing you interesting people to talk to that you wouldn't necessarily run into in your life. And boy, is that true today. You're gonna get an opportunity to listen in and hear a conversation with a really interesting person. I've never met anyone like this before, and I met him not long ago. His name is Izzy Azagwi. He was a decorated squad commander in Israeli Defense Forces. Now, what makes him unique? Well, he is the only soldier, only soldier in the world who lost an arm in combat and returned to the battlefield. In 2011, former President Shimon Peres awarded him one of Israel's highest military honors. And while he continues to serve in an elite unit in the reserves, Izzy delivers inspirational speeches really around the world. And he's here to talk about his book that he took a long time in writing. This wasn't something that he just sat down and it just poured out. It's entitled Disarmed, Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. I'm really anxious to talk about all of this. So, Izzy, welcome to fill in the blanks. Thank you for having me, sir. Well, I'm really interested to talk to you about this whole situation. Now, you're an American, right? Mm-hmm. And you were living where when you were 18, 17, 18, going to high school and all? I grew up in, in Miami. For your bar mitzvah, you went to Israel, correct? That's correct. I went to Israel for my bar mitzvah. It was during the, uh, the second intifada. And so when you made that trip, you went with, was it just you and your parents? Uh, and my sister. Yeah, it was a small family trip. Okay. When you were there, you met some Israeli soldiers, correct? Yeah, they're always out and about uh, traveling home from, from base. It's a very small country, so you see them everywhere. You met and talked to some of these guys. Tell me about that and what impact it had on you. Uh, the impact that I had meeting soldiers didn't happen when I was, was 13. It actually happened when I was 18. It was the second time that I had gone, had gone back. Um, what impacted me most as a 13-year-old in Israel was having narrowly avoided the infamous Sabaro bombing. There was a pizzeria uh, that was blown up when I was there. Uh, and we had just passed that intersection uh, shortly beforehand. So uh, it there was my like first... 15 people killed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 15, uh, somewhere around 15 people killed, many more wounded, and it was kind of just looping on the news. 
uh, and I was sitting, sitting huddled with my family in the hotel room, uh, watching footage of that. Uh, and that was really the first time that it dawned on me that I, uh, would maybe want to participate in not allowing that to happen again in the future. Even at 13, you thought about that. Looking back, that was like the first kernel, um, that, that, uh, led to me volunteering for the IDF. But yeah, it was when I was 18 and I, I got to like actually meet soldiers who were my age, essentially my peers who were doing something very different than I was at that age that really pushed me to actually follow through. Yeah. And how long after that second trip was it before you actually joined the military? It was less than a year. That's really an unusual thing. You're an American, you're living in Miami, and you go to Israel and join the armed forces over there. That's a big step. Uh, unusual is the right word for it, yeah. No, no need to mince words. It's unusual. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, I grew up playing video games. I don't like not showering and spending days on end in the dirt without proper food. But um, the, the idea of protecting the Jewish people was a compelling enough reason to push against who I am um, and take that leap. What'd your parents think about that? Uh, it's interesting because uh, their reaction to my original joining of the military was, I think, more the stereotype, which is that my father was worried, but very proud. I think his, his pride overtook any fear of something happening. And my mother uh, just cried. She, she cried endlessly uh, leading up to, to that first time she watched me leave on the bus. Um, and that changed uh, quite dramatically later on, but we can get to that uh, juxtaposition later. We can hold off. And so how long had you been in when you sustained your injury? The very day that I had finished training, um, which was about nine and a half months into my service, that very day we were sent home on our final weekend leave before we were going to be activated as combat soldiers. And it was that weekend that war broke out on the border of Gaza and my unit was sent there. So the first thing that I saw out of training uh, was that operation. This is January 8th, 2009. So this is your first day out of training. Yep. Thrown right into it. This was a really big mortar shell that landed near you. And you lost not just an arm, but your dominant arm, correct? Yep. 120 millimeter mortar landed less than a foot away from me. Uh, it has, I believe, a 30 meter kill zone. And there was more than one of them that landed within that zone. We found helmets that were split in half. Uh, three, three fellow soldiers were wounded alongside me and miraculously none of us uh, were, were killed in action. Um, but yeah, lost my, my dominant arm on the spot. Obviously, this had to be a excruciatingly painful, shocking, horrible thing. But you said the thing that worried you most was what your mother's reaction was going to be. Uh, have, have you met any Jewish mothers over the years? Yes, I have. So yeah, they, they have a tendency to put the, the fear of God in you, even when you're going through something like this. Yeah. I, was, I was more afraid of her reaction and, and how she was going to find out than what I was going through. Uh, and that actually compelled me uh, when we landed at the, at the hospital, the helicopter landed at the hospital and I saw TV crews trying to capture footage for the news. And I was so scared that she would see me that way. 
that I actually like bent down and grabbed a blanket that was resting by my feet. I used it to cover my face. And uh, she did see me on TV, but she didn't know it was me. And that's the only reason that we're able to do this interview today because she would have killed me. <laughs> yeah, she would have finished the job. Yep. I, 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 I'm pretty confident that that's the case. So how did she find out? I'm sure you at some point had to tell her. And how did you tell her? And what was her reaction? Uh, she, the way she found out was, was just as dramatic, unfortunately. Um, she got a knock on the door and there were three officers standing outside. And, uh, if I'm not mistaken here in the U S when that happens, it usually means that your, your, your son or daughter has already perished. And that was her initial thought. Um, and to make matters worse, she barely spoke Hebrew and they didn't speak any English. And they showed her a piece of paper and on the paper, uh, the only words in English were, were wounded or critically wounded. And she just fell apart. And fortunately, one of the officers who was beside my stretcher when I was being rolled into the hospital was able to connect us over the phone. So I spoke to my mother even before I went into surgery. While I was bleeding out, I already had a battlefield amputation. Uh, I was able to talk to her. And uh, even more than that, I was able to calm her down. I told her to listen to my voice. I asked her if she could hear that I was actually okay. And uh, I asked her if she could be strong for me. And uh, she calmed down immediately. And ever since, uh, I mean, I mentioned that there was a, a drastic change in my parents' reaction when I decided to go back. And, and that's what I mean, is I've never seen her cry about it again. Um, she, she seems to have become stronger through what happened. And my father's the one who is constantly trying to convince me, like, why do you have to go back? You did enough. Um, he's the one who seems to have taken on the role of, of being more afraid. You said there was a battlefield amputation? Yeah. It wasn't done by the, the medics. It actually was done by the munition itself. So they just controlled the bleeding, everything that they could at the time. And... How long was it before they got you into surgery? Well, I don't know how, uh, how gruesome of, of, of a detail you want to get into here. Um, so tell me if it's okay to, to share. Um, there was so much blood that the first tourniquet that they put on slipped off, um, which is, that was probably the most painful part of the whole experience. Tourniquets are, are painful even in training. You have to train on how to put them on. And even then the pressure is tremendous. But when you have an actual amputation and they're tightening on that wound and then it slips off, um, that was probably the, the, the most brutal element involved. Um, so it took two of those and a lot of lying. I lied to every medic that I, I came across every time they changed over hands. I kept telling them that uh, I didn't get morphine yet. So I was like way, way overdosed, uh, which I'm sure you, you wouldn't be happy about. You wouldn't recommend. Um, but at the time, it, it felt like a great idea and uh, definitely changed the feeling at the moment. I'm sure it did seem like a good idea at the time. And uh, apparently it worked out because you're here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm all right over here, but uh, otherwise I, I survived it. I, I grabbed the, the medic on the helicopter and I asked him if, if they were going to reattach the arm. And he was, even, he was able to tell me then already that because my elbow uh, is, is what took the greatest uh, damage, there was no way that they were going to be able to replace it. So I actually went under knowing that I would wake up minus my dominant arm. 
And the fact that it was your dominant arm, I'm sure that made rehab that much harder because you had to relearn, retrain everything with your non-dominant arm. How long were you in the hospital and how long were you in rehab? The hospital, I think I, I stuck around for about six months. Uh, a lot of that was was in a haze. I, I have, even presently, I have severe phantom pain. It's something that I, that I imagine I will have to keep dealing with. Um, but I spent about six months in the hospital, uh, pretty much skipped rehab entirely. Uh, as far as occupational therapy, learning how to do things, I, I decided that I was going to figure it out on my own. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do you think you do now in terms of efficiency of fine motor skills and all with your right arm versus what you originally did with your left arm? Uh, I, I mean, we're very resilient, uh, us human beings. And I think that when we aren't really given a choice, when we're, when we're back against the wall, we tend to find solutions very quickly. And because I didn't have a choice, it wasn't like I, I broke an arm and it was casted and I had to learn and I knew I would get it back. I knew that this was it. I learned extremely quickly. Um, granted, there are things that I still don't do very well. I can't cut steak. I have to ask the kitchen to cut it for me if I, uh, on the rare occasion that I have one of those. Uh, I can't play guitar anymore, which is probably good for everyone else out there who would have had to listen. I was horrible. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's, it breaks down into two camps. It's things that I learned how to do just as well as I used to do and things that I just avoid. Um, and it's not even like a, a conscious thing. It's subconscious. I just avoid the things that I don't, uh, that I don't have the capacity to do and, and uh, have moved on with my life. I feel very comfortable. Yeah. And your job in the military, you were a sharpshooter, correct? Correct. Is, is that a sniper? Is that, what exactly did that entail? Yeah, there is a, a distinction between the two. A sniper is usually uh, set up undercover somewhere, uh, not usually in middle of the, the conflict where, where like troops are moving forward. Uh, every unit that's advancing has sharpshooters at the very front of, of the attack force. And they are the individuals that are actually uh, they actually have to take the enemy down. Most, most firing in the field is just to get people's heads down, to get the enemy's head down. And then there are the sharpshooters that are actually meant to hit targets. Uh, it's one of the, the harder roles uh, in, in a conflict. When you requalified and got back into the field, was it in a different job or the same job? 
Uh, no, I, I continued to serve as a sharpshooter after the injury. Um, I imagine it'll be interesting to hear that my, my targeting, my actual shooting didn't suffer from the injury. Um, what was harder was, was loading my rifle uh, and unjamming it. That, that is really difficult minus an arm and I had to figure out a few uh, unique ways to get that done. But the shooting, I don't know, I, I guess I played enough video games. I, I mentioned I was a, a Miami Jewish nerd uh, playing Xbox growing up and I think that hand-eye coordination really helped me out later on. I've shot a lot of rifles and all and it seemed like a really two-hand job you know, one down the barrel and one at the trigger mechanism. How did you do that? How did you work it out? I mean, it really does depend on the weapon. Some, some are tougher than others. Um, at the time, Israel had introduced uh, a rifle called the Tavor, and they had a smaller version of it called the Micro Tavor, and most of the weight lies on the back of the rifle. So when you're holding it by the grip, uh, the weight's not leaning forward, uh, and that gave you a little extra wiggle room to, to hold on to it. It didn't require as much strength. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like it was easy, um, but I figured it out. And so how long were you back in the field afterwards? Uh, I served another two years after I was injured. I, I obviously had to uh, prove myself combat worthy again. That was a whole process. Um, I was given a month to retake all the tests that a combat soldier usually has eight months to finish. So I had to learn how to shoot, load, and unjam my assault rifle, uh, how to do obstacle courses in full combat gear that, in, that include uh, climbing a rope, jumping over a seven-foot wall, uh, crawling a long distance. Uh, I eventually figured out how to pull grenade pins um, by tying tape around the pin so that it served as like a, a cushion. And then I pulled it out with my teeth like Rambo. Um, so yeah, it was more a matter of just taking the time and giving myself the space to figure out how I was going to do all those things. Um, that was the easy part. And then the hard part was convincing the military to give me that opportunity because they were obviously reluctant to put someone uh, in my situation back in a combat environment. Why did they do that? What did you do to convince them? I'm interested in that because I know that you do a lot of motivational speaking and that sort of thing now. That first motivational speech had to be to convince them to let you do it again. I, I've never quite looked at it that, that way, but that's very true. Uh, I, I had to motivate a lot of different uh, people who were reluctant at the start. Um, and if I'm being entirely honest, that, that strength came from my, my parents. Um, because it wasn't some afterthought that I wanted to go back. The very first thing I said when I woke up is that I intended to, to continue my role in combat. Uh, and granted, this is right after an injury. Uh, I was on a lot of medication, a lot of painkillers. But I remember looking up at my parents the first time that I woke up in my hospital bed and telling them that I planned to go back. And my father burst into tears. And he said, how could you even joke about something like that after what happened to you? And my mother, who's standing on the other side of the bed, she turns to him and says, if this is what his heart is telling him, we have to stand behind him. We have to let him give this a shot. And I'm, I'm lying there and I'm watching them argue back and forth about my going back to combat. And I wasn't focused on my father's fears. I wasn't even focused on the insane strength 
that my mother was showing by considering something like this. I was reading between the lines and what I saw there is that they both believe that I can do it. My father may not have wanted me to do it, but he believed that I could. And that gave me so much strength. That belief fueled every single interaction that I had with, uh, with the generals that would come to visit in the hospital, the politicians. And I just, I, I went through every rotation. I asked every single one of them uh, if they would help me go back. And eventually I got the answer I was looking for. Uh, I, I found one general uh, that when I was ready, gave me the opportunity to retest. So your parents taking it seriously, like it, not just that you wanted to do it, but they thought he could actually do this. So we need to take this seriously. Yeah. I mean, that'll give you strength for sure. Now, where does this come from? Because you're describing yourself as this nerd sitting down in Miami, not distinguishing yourself as an athlete or anything particular at the time. But then here we go, this takes place and you do what you do. You wind up being the only soldier in the world, in the world to do this. Why? Why you? So if you would have asked me why I was joining the first time around, um, it was ideologically driven. It was, it was wanting to protect the Jewish people. If you would ask me the second time around, it was because I needed there to be a reason for what happened. I, I didn't want to put my injury in the hands of fate or a higher power. I, I decided that if there was going to be a reason, it had to be of my own making. And the only thing that I can think of that would give it purpose was to do something special with it. I understood that if I went back, I would be able to inspire the soldiers around me. And, and more selfish than that, I, I, I understood that if I went back, it was almost as if I was undoing the damage. I told myself that if I continue serving in a combat role, which is what I was doing before the injury, after the injury, then it's as if it never happened. And in, in a large way, that is what I managed to do because as soon as I was back in combat, there were full days where I just totally forgot that I had an injury. I was just me again. I was whole. And, and I, I like to think that for the most part, I've kind of carried that into civilian life. I still walk around Los Angeles and I don't really feel disabled. I don't carry myself that way. I don't think of myself that way. And because of that, most people don't see me that way either. It's interesting that you say that because obviously your injury is visible, but when we met, that just didn't register with me at all. You don't present as disabled or injured in that way. You don't project that in any way. It's not part of your presentation. It's not part of your presence or your countenance. You don't present yourself as macho, Rambo, in any way at all. Quite the contrary. As a well, that's because I'm not. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'll clarify again. I am not in any way macho. I, I am still absolutely a nerd. Uh, that's the one exception to the rule is, is, is the story that we're talking about today. Um, but to be fair, I think in our specific instance, the reason why uh, you didn't notice the injury is because I was actually introducing you to, to my pal that's with me here now. I don't know if you guys can catch him on, on camera. I see Punch there. Yeah. Punch, Punch is hanging out with us. He's my, my lovely service dog. Uh, I named him 
punch because he took over the job of my flying left fist and I didn't want to name him fist. Um, so he, he hangs out with me and I think that's the reason why you didn't notice. So I, I think there's a distinction to make there. Well, I'm definitely a dog lover and I fell for punch right away. He's one of the best. <laughs> He's a good pup. He's pretty smitten with you. That's for sure. Oh yeah. That feeling is mutual. We've been hanging out for six years now. He's my best friend. So you get out of the military and you've done a lot of things since then. You've raised millions of dollars for hospitals, rehab programs, and charities such as the Birthright Foundation. You've worked with amputee organizations and schools, colleges, universities. When you've gone out and spoken, right now, there's a lot of controversy in America, and there's been a lot of attention to anti-Semitic sort of rhetoric and people that are very vocal about this at this point. What's been your experience when you've gone out to speak? Uh, I mean, it obviously depends on the venue, but I think maybe the most prudent thing to focus on uh, to answer your question is, is when I speak on college campuses, because that is where it is the most divisive and controversial. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that it doesn't just have to do with Israel. Everything is divisive today on campus, but because that is what, where my story took place and I, and that is the topic of conversation, even without hearing what I have to say, there is usually a, a group of students who show up um, to protest and uh, name call and and use some pretty horrible terminology in my direction, uh, and that's before they even have to hear what what I have to say. Um, I I don't think it's an Israel problem. I think it's a broader cultural problem. Um, I I didn't go to college, and and I'm kind of glad. Uh, I think at this point that I missed that. Um, it's a scary place to be these days. Uh, you know, that's where the divisiveness I think starts and, uh, it's, it's spreading into the, the marketplace of ideas, uh, thereafter. So what do you hear from these protesters? What do they say to you before they ever even know what your message is, what you're there to talk about? I mean, they know what you're there to talk about, but they don't know what your message is and what your talking points are and what you want them to consider. Right. I'm, I'm coming there to inspire and, uh, and shed some positive light on, on a difficult experience that I faced on the other side of the world. Um, a lot of what I get uh, comes with uh, the title of you're a terrorist, you're an apartheid enforcer, you're a baby killer. Um, things that nobody, nobody wants to hear, things that I've been hearing for, for many years now to the point where I've kind of been desensitized from it. Um, and my goal when that happens is to start a conversation. Um, I, I want those people there and, and I want to change their mind as, as crazy as that sounds, because I feel like once somebody throws something that gruesome at you, you probably aren't going to be able to change their mind. But I've, I've been surprised that I've been able to at least have conversations with people, um, and, and hear their perspective and share mine and, and leave uh, shaking hands, even if we don't agree on the, on the particular points. Um, I think without dialogue, there, there's no way to, to get anything done. And again, that's not an Israel issue. 
that's that's something that we're dealing with in in politics in the United States today. Uh, people just aren't willing to talk to each other anymore. And how do you start that conversation when you go to speak and somebody's there hurling these labels at you and calling you baby killer and all? What is your rejoinder? How do you initiate that conversation? I want people to hear that. Well, for starters, I actually listen. Most people today don't listen to what somebody who disagrees with them has to say. So I actually listen. And I think people notice that. Um, and I'm honest with them. I tell them that I want to have this conversation. I'm, I'm willing to hear them out. Uh, and what I tend to do is I'll say, hey, you know what? Let, listen to, to my remarks. Listen to what I came here to talk about. Let me get through my presentation. Let me try to inspire people in the way that I know how to do. And then afterwards, I promise your questions will be the first one that I answer in the Q&A. And sometimes they're willing to, to give me that benefit of the doubt. And other times their minds are so made up before they get there that I can't even get that out of them. But that's also okay. Um, because something else that I noticed is that you're not always or not only having this discussion with the person who disagrees with you entirely. It's also about all the other people who are listening. And when they see that you're willing to talk and someone else isn't, uh, you look good and they don't. You're, you're winning that argument just by trying to when others aren't. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. When those people that you say, look, listen to what I have to say, what I've come here to try and inspire people about, which is not necessarily political. Not at all. Personal. It's very personal and very much challenging people in their own journey, independent of their their politics, when they hear you talk about those things, you get to the end of that speech and you say, I'll, I'll let you have the first question. What happens? It varies tremendously from event to event. Uh, I've had events where they just didn't even let me speak and it just ended there. And I've had events where the Q&A ended after 40 minutes of a real dialogue with everyone involved, people with opposing ideas. And even though the event is over and they, they need the space back, we end up talking for another two hours in a different corner. Um, and I love when that happens and I'm, and I'm willing to keep trying to make that happen. Um, even though there, there are, uh, you know, many misfires and, and, uh, just being shouted down. Um, I mean, I'm a sensitive guy. I don't, nobody likes being called horrible names, uh, regardless of the circumstances, but, uh, you have to try. Do they respond to your message despite the fact that they don't like where it happened, what you were doing and the labels that they've put on you? Do they at least respond to the personal message? I, I mean, it's hard to know. It's hard to know, Dr. Phil. I, I, I'm, I, would, I would like to think that occasionally. Um, again, how many people are actually listening to ideas that they, that they oppose today? Not, not about Israel, but about anything political, about anything uh, that the algorithm keeps dividing us further on. 
Um, I, I, I can tell you that I think it's been getting worse and worse over the last decade. Um, and I don't see how it gets better. Um, I'm clearly a very good motivational speaker. I don't know if you can pick up on it from my morbid uh, message over there. Um, but I think it's getting worse and I don't know how we, how we make it better, is, uh, is what I'm trying to say. Those people that don't have that attitude, that don't have that prejudgment and come in there with a confirmation bias, how do they respond to your message? I mean, I've had people who, who it was pointed out to me are there to protest who ended up thanking me by the time I was walking out. And I wish I can say that happens often. It doesn't. Um, but all I can do is try. I, I, yeah, I, I don't really know what else to say on that given topic. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a cruel world out there today. Well, you said that you wrote this book with your fellow millennials in mind. This guy's, Not necessarily yeah. those with military ambitions, but just everybody facing challenges in life. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, unconventional lessons. It's not a, a step-by-step guide on how to accomplish anything specific. Uh, the, the, the memoir is about as unconventional as I am. Um, but I, I wanted people, the people who took the time to read it, to leave with the idea that if a Jewish nerd from Miami can go back to combat after he loses an arm, they could probably accomplish whatever it is that they're striving to accomplish in life. Um, and if I manage to do that in any way, that's, that's a win. And I think you make a good point because you're very self-deprecating in that, but you say if a self-described nerd, a one-armed basket case like you can accomplish what you set your mind to, that anybody from any walk of life, whatever their circumstance, can become a hero in his or her own life. What do you mean by that? Talk more about that. I mean, I think, I think you just said it right there. Don't, don't you agree that, that seeing another case of somebody who isn't really spectacular in any, any way, uh, you know, even today, I've, I've, I've had that adventure. I've gone on the adventure of a lifetime. I've traveled to a, to a foreign planet uh, you know, if you want to call it that, done, done the whole Luke Skywalker thing on, on that mission. And, uh, and I still complain about paper cuts and I still have the same issues day to day that, that we all have. It's not like I solved this massive problem. It's just that I cared enough about a, a certain cause to figure it out, to, to pull off one extraordinary event. Um, does that read with you? Do you, do you not think that uh, we can all do that? given uh, the right motivation, that we can all pull something like that off? Well, I don't think situations like yours or any other situations make heroes. I think situations, circumstances, challenges reveal who someone is. I think if a circumstance comes up like you were in or a natural disaster occurs and someone distinguishes themselves. I think all that situation did was give them a stage, an opportunity to reveal who they were all along. It just wasn't called on until that time. And I've seen people in 
the aftermath of hurricanes or tornadoes or in the California fires that do extraordinary things to help other people to overcome incredible obstacles to save themselves, their families, their neighbors, other people's lives who were nondescript individuals that you would walk by every day and never so much as notice. And they're touted as heroes. I think they were heroes all along. They were just waiting for the time that they were called upon to be who they have always been. And I think that is the same thing with you. I tell people, look, you need to star in your own life. You need to decide who you are and what you stand for, and don't be reactive. You need to find a passion, pursue it with vigor, and be the star in your own life. Don't be a bit player in your own life. To me, that makes perfect sense. And sometimes I have people say, well, that's easy for you. You have a television platform. You have millions of people that watch. It's easy to think about starring in your own life. But I think it's true if you're a plumber or a school teacher or a parking lot attendant or a stay-at-home mom or dad. I think it's important that people do and can find a way to star in their own life. You got to be who you are on purpose. And that begins with finding that purpose and then saying, why am I here? You know, Viktor Frankl said it really well when he was in the death camps. He said, they can control everything about me, whether I live, die, sit, stand, eat, starve, but they can't control my attitude. That's internal to me, and that I control, and that's where it begins. Uh, yeah, that I mean, Viktor Frankl's uh, book *Man's Man's Search for Meaning* spoke to me tremendously, and and uh, I, well said. I I think uh, I'm still ruminating on on the idea that it, these incidents reveal the heroes that that walk among us, and I think that to a degree we all carry scars. There's no one who who walks this earth without some version uh, of a scar, and and for me it's it's visible and it's a missing arm. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to, to do something that people actually see. Um, but we all deal with something, right? For, for some of us, it's, uh, it's divorce, uh, it's cancer, it's the loss of someone close to us. And we have the opportunity when that, when that scar happens to react the way that, that Viktor Frankl, Frankl talks about, uh, which is heroically. That can't be controlled. We're the only ones who control that. Um, so I agree. I haven't quite looked at it that way before, revealing the heroes inside us, um, given the opportunity. But I really like that. Yeah. As you say, everybody will face that. I think back in my life, I had a motorcycle one time. I didn't have a license for it, so we couldn't get insurance on it. And my dad told me, all right, look, you can have this, but don't leave the neighborhood and do not let anybody else ride this because we don't have insurance for it. So I promptly left the neighborhood and let my best friend ride it. And he, he hit a Buick Riviera doing about 80 miles an hour. And he wasn't killed, but he was seriously injured. And we were barely scraping by at the time. And 
my dad walked into the hospital and I knew, oh my God, he's going to kill me. I did exactly what he said not to do. I remember like it was yesterday, he walked into that hospital and he said, he better have taken that motorcycle without your permission. And that was a real choice point for me. I was 13 years old and he looked at me with just eyes that just looked right through me. And I said, well, he didn't. I handed him the keys and told him it was okay to go. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. And, I, you know, that was 50 more, almost 60 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And it wasn't dramatic. It doesn't matter to anybody else. But I never forgot that when I had a chance to lie or tell the truth, I told the truth at my own peril. And it started a pattern. That's just what I've always done. It wasn't something you put in the paper. Doesn't matter to the person sitting next to me. But we have a lot of little situations that ride on the slate of who we are. Sometimes they're big situations like yours. Sometimes it's like a hurricane or a forest fire or something that reveals somebody. But that's how we learn about ourselves. You had to have watched what you did and based on that made attributions to yourself about who you were. There's no way you could do this if you didn't. You said my mother and father, they took me serious enough to think we better react to this because he could do this. They believe that about you. There's a point you had to say, I can no shit do this. And when you cleared one hurdle, when you climbed that rope, when you crawled that hundred yards under netting or whatever you had to do, you had to get up from that and say, I just did that. I can do this. And you had to make that attribution to yourself. And that stays with you today, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely fades with time. I, I, it's, it's weird to admit, but I, I forget my own experience. I forget my own life story. Um, I just kind of have gone back to being this uh, guy who sits at cafes in Los Angeles and writes with his dog. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, subconsciously it has to stick with you. Um, it, it's such a part of, of who I am, but... Um, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend like I knew I was going to succeed that, that eight months of, of crossing the, the red tape and, and retraining and having to do different exercises and tests for, for generals that would have to give the, the check mark of approval for me to move on to the next stage. I didn't actually know that I was going to make it until the day I was back in, in combat. And even then, I'm not sure if I believed it. Um, so, so I certainly didn't take it for granted uh, at the time that it was just going to work out. Uh, it, it's only easy to look back and, and realize that it was almost destined to happen with uh, the attitude that I was approaching it with. Yeah, that's what I say. The hero that's revealed in the situation, nobody knew that he was a hero, including him. It's got to be almost like an out-of-body experience where you're watching yourself and when it's over, you've got to have that moment where you look back and say, oh my God. <laughs> oh yeah, at least once a day back then. Yeah, every, every, time, I, every time I passed another hurdle. And, and I've got a good example for you. Um, 
there's there's one test that I mentioned that you have to do an obstacle course in full combat gear uh, that has the the wall and the rope and all those different things. And the first time that I took that test with uh, with both arms before the injury, when I was a a trainee, I failed by two seconds. I don't remember the exact amount of time that you had. It's like somewhere over ten minutes. It's a long run. It's all these obstacle courses. I failed by two seconds. And I got woken up the next morning by my, uh, by my lieutenant. And he's like, you're going to do this every morning until you pass. And because of that, I passed that second morning by two seconds because I didn't want to have to wake up again the next morning. But what's interesting is that after I was injured, the very first time that I took that test again without an arm, that's climbing the rope, that's jumping over the wall, crawling, uh, parallel bars. I had to find like a funky way to do the parallel bars by, by sitting on them and scooting across. Um, my time dropped by over two minutes the very first time that I tried it, minus an arm. And my record by the time I was uh, in, in training to be a, a squad commander was a full minute lower than that. So I was doing better minus an arm than I was with both. And that's just attitude. It's how you approach things. It's perspective. It's how, how badly you want something. Um, so yeah, there were some lessons learned, but it's so important that we make those self attributions that we take time to look back and say, I did that because we take plenty of time to say, I screwed that up. I failed that. I messed that up. I didn't do this right. We don't take enough time to stop and say, I did that. It's so important. And I see it with kids today. I have parents that bring their teens on that have problems. I'll ask them sometimes, tell me the five things you like best about yourself. I got to tell you, Izzy, they're dumbstruck. They look at me and they're like, I, uh, uh, I, I, I can ask them, what is it you don't like about yourself? And they'll say, well, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm dumb, I'm not, I don't have good social skills, I don't do well in school. My, they just rattle them off. But you say, what do you like about yourself? They haven't taken time to do that inventory on the positive side of the sheet and acknowledge. When I help them, I got to say, well, are you a good friend? Well, yeah, I've got good friends. Why are they like you? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty dependable. I'm loyal. Okay. So you're loyal and you're dependable. What are you good at? Well, you know, I'm, I, I read well. So, all right. So you're not dumb, right? So you're smart. So you help them construct a list and you can see them. They sit up straighter, you know, their shoulders go back and they start realizing, I do have some attributes that are worthy of acknowledgement. People don't do that enough. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm guilty of the same thing. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to do that exercise with you while, while you're explaining it. And uh, that's a little embarrassing to admit that I have to really think about it myself. I, I fall into the same trap. Much easier to pick out the things that I don't like uh, than the things I'm proud of. Um, but it's a good exercise. It's not about being arrogant. It's not about being belligerent in our strengths or whatever. But I really started embracing that when I was in sports and I've had coaches that 
would get to the end of the session and say, okay, let's take 15 minutes and work on what you're really good at. We've worked on the things you need to build, but now let's really sharpen what you're really good at. Mm-hmm. And well, whatever the sport, whatever it was, that thing that I was best at, they'd say, let's finish focusing on that, which A, I left feeling good because I was doing something I was really good at and I was making that become a weapon. It was getting better and better. And I just realized, you know, you got to focus on your strengths sometimes and not just your weaknesses. Have you, have you noticed that trend uh, worsening as the years go on? I have. When we were together the other night, I don't know if you were there when I had that very divided audience that we were with. Oh, I was there. I was watching. Make an eye contact and regard each other as human beings. I think we've just completely gotten away from the humanity of our society, of our communities, of our subgroups and universities. And I was actually heartened by the fact that when I had these people make eye contact and regard each other, forget your differences for a minute, forget your values that you so strongly believe. I don't worry so much about people that are wrong. I worry more about people who are so certain they're right. Put that aside and regard this person as a human being that has a mother and a father and a sister and maybe a loss recently or a great victory or whatever. I saw that room shift. Just oh, I mean, you did, it, you did it three times and it was, it was powerful to watch uh, how, how things kind of melted and people melted down with each version of it and each new person that they interacted with. Uh, and looked into their eyes. Uh, I, I'm curious if you had your hand on the lever, if you had some kind of magic pill, uh, something that you can do uh, to change what is happening. What would you do if you had that power? Like, how would you actually shift the way that people are dealing with each other and 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 the direction that we're heading in? You know, I've spent a lot of time teaching negotiation skills. I take a kind of unconventional approach to it, whether it's in business or between a mother and a kid or whatever, if there are two sides to something, I always encourage people to say, okay, I want you to go into this with one value and one first step to the approach. And the one value is Not that I'm going to try to get everything I can out of this negotiation, but I already know what I need to have. I'm going to go into this with a value of trying to see how much of what they want I can get for them in this negotiation. I know my bottom line. I'm not going to agree to something. If I know what I need, I don't need to focus on that right now. What can I do to get them as much of what they need as I possibly can? Now, to do that, I have to listen. Because I can't know what's important to them if I don't listen. Because we may want very different things here that are mutually exclusive. And I might be able to give them what they need without sacrificing what I need. And I only know that if I listen. It might be money's important to me and time's important to them. 
you know, a mother and a teen. It might be freedom's important to the child and safety's important to the parent. So if you can figure a way that she feels safe and he feels free, those aren't necessarily at odds. So, so listening, listening is your magic pill. People, people listening to one another, which doesn't happen anymore. What, what can be done? What, what is like just even a, a fake scenario, a, a, an all-powerful thing? What can be done that that points us in that direction, as opposed to f- like moving further towards where we're heading? Part of it is requiring people to reflect feeling and content. We have too much one-way communication where people are talking and nobody reflects back what they just heard, either in content or emotion, which means they didn't hear what was being said. That's a one-way communication model instead of a two-way communication model. If you add that loop back in, all of a sudden we have people that are actually talking with someone instead of at someone, and we've stopped doing that. We're yelling at one another right now in a strident way instead of before we can make a point, we have to reflect their point. And that's just not happening. We've stopped doing that. If you and I were in this to use this as an example, I would have to say what you want me to respond with is to give you some kind of example where it would illustrate what I'm talking about and how that can be applied to the divisiveness that we have right now. Give me a working example. Give me a working model. Mm-hmm is what you asked me. And you don't know that I've heard that until I reflect that back to you. I I already feel differently about your response because you just did that. Absolutely. Yeah. And because I reflect it back to you means, okay, I've heard you. So then your response might be, okay, now do it. (laughs) Okay. You heard me now. (laughs) That's that's great. Let's do it. Let's, let's figure this out. Let's, let's fix America. Yeah, And that's what happens in negotiation. When I say, okay, I'm going to go in and say, how much of what they want can I get for them? Then I'm going in there saying, okay, this isn't all about me. And then secondly, I've got to go into it and say, I've got to listen because we may want, as I was saying before, very different things. Because oftentimes I'll start out by saying, Okay, before we begin, I want us to talk about everything we agree on before we talk about the things we disagree on. Mm. Because when you do that, you find out, you know what? We have more in common than we thought we did. We both want this country to do well. We both want to be safe and secure. We both want to prosper. We might have a long list of things that we agree on, and maybe we can bond over those things. Now, what are the few things that we disagree on? And they may be monumental, but we at least have some commonality before we get to those things. Let's build a positive base here before we get to the problem solving. 
what do we agree on before we talk about the things we don't agree on? If you start with the things you don't agree on, you're in an immediate fight. So much of it is about perspective. And, and when you start from the perspective, it, we agree on all of these things. Let's now deal with the rest of it. Uh, it doesn't come across as a blatant attack. It doesn't come across as they are the other, uh, the enemy. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe a good exercise to start implementing. Uh, maybe the next time you do something with, uh, with students is to find that common ground first. It would have been interesting to see that done. It's astounding when you do that with people that have a lot in common, like age, both in a university or an institution, both work at the same company. Maybe everybody's a parent. Maybe everybody, you see these school boards melting down and turning into fist fights and police coming down. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Time out. Let's make a list on the board here of everything we agree on. We will get to the issues in a minute, but what do we agree on? We all want our kids to be educated. We all want them to be safe. We all want them to come home without being bullied. We all want them to have good self-esteem. We all want them to have success experiences. We're all responsible parents. We all want these for our kids. Now, what are the issues that we maybe don't agree on? And how can we fold these into these agree issues over here? People aren't doing this. When I work with groups, I try to get them to focus on that. And you see the groups change when you do it. You see individuals change when you do it. So that's my answer. Yeah. I mean, you've got your, your work cut out for you. Um, I wish you luck with it. I don't envy that job. No, it's not an easy job. But I do think it's a worthwhile job because people say this is the worst it's ever been. Well. You know, there was the Civil War. There were, <laughs> there were times where it got a little more contentious. Yeah, we're back to perspective. That's true. That's when you frame it that way. We have had some really tough times in, uh, in, in the sh relatively short history of this country. Um, and we found our way back. So why not do it again? You've been willing to move your position, take your experiences, and let them inspire you to talking about how this could play out in other scenarios. You've been doing some short films. You did one that I saw that I thought was particularly inspired. I think it was Pull Yourself Together. You found, where did you find that? Hey, I got my sources here. Whoa, got, somebody did some, re that's, that's a deep cut. Um, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of embarrassed you saw that. That's the first, uh, <laughs> the first short film that I, that I wrote and also starred in, and it's very odd. Um, very strange. This was one where this person lost their arm in a non-heroic circumstance. Uh, to put it mildly, yeah. He drove drunk, got into a car accident and I'm all. Still, I'm still blown away that you actually watched that short film. <laughs> okay. But what got you to look at it from that standpoint? Because you did it in a very admirable way. You went 180 degrees out to somebody that lost it in a really monstrous way, the absolute bottom of the humanity heap. What made you go that direction? Why did I choose to make a short film that I starred in about a one-armed guy who lost his arm drunk driving and killing someone? Uh, it's a great question. I, I'm like trying to put myself back there and, and I think it's going to sound odd, but I think maybe because I wanted to appreciate my situation more 
I wanted to put myself in a, the same physical situation. Yes, that character lost an arm. But the circumstances around it are terrifying because what I went through, most of the people around me were, were almost proud of my sacrifice. I, was, I, was, I received accolades. I received awards, pats on the back, love, respect. And there are people who end up in the same situation that not only did they suffer the physical trauma, but also have to deal with being reviled. And maybe it was some kind of like far-fetched hope that I would feel even better about what happened to me, knowing that it could have been so much worse on the psychological front. Um, but that's looking back. Maybe I'm trying to create a reason. Uh, I thought it would be an interesting short film. It was very wacky. Um, uh, I, I don't know what compelled me to write a story about a guy who digs up his own arm and, and scotch tapes it back to his, uh, to himself and tries to pretend like things are normal again. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm just blown away that you actually found that. It's traveling the whole range and very creative. You've got a circumstance and you're using it in every way to explore different things. I think one of your passions and missions is to tell people to embrace their circumstance and find a way to create value out of it. Mm -hmm. That's Frankel's message, create meaning to your suffering. I mean, if not, you're left with insanity. And that's just a great example. It doesn't have to make mainstream sense. Just do something with it. Don't just sit there. Do something with it. And who knows what you'll hit upon. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's a deep cut. Um, Thank you for watching that. Thank you for bringing it up. That's, that's really funny. I'm glad you liked it. Well, you did to others. You did take what you want and good head. And none of these are something that you would expect to see in an after-school special. They're different. Yeah. I'm going to list them on uh, our website so people can look at them and see where your mind goes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I moved out here to, to, to screenwrite. I came out here like six years ago, and uh, I, I've landed on, on horror so that's why they all seem to be a little odd, um, those films. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you f even follow the progression of that backwards, uh, I, I want to be a screenwriter now, um, but I, I wouldn't have found that if I hadn't written the memoir, and I wouldn't have focused on that memoir if I hadn't uh, experienced something that was worth, worth writing. Um, so even just looking at it that way, uh, it all feels like a, a path that needed to happen, or at least taking advantage of something that happened to, to create value, to, to follow in, in Viktor Frankl's footsteps. Well, you did it, and you're continuing to do it. And the book is Disarmed, Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. I told you this was going to be an interesting conversation. I stand by what I said. Izzy is an author, he's a screenwriter, he's an actor, he's a blogger, and I'm so glad I met you recently. I'm so glad you took this time to talk about this. Keep doing what you're doing, man, and uh, I hope to see you again very soon. Thank you, Dr. Phil. This was a sincere pleasure. I appreciate it. And for me as well. I'm proud to know you, and I look forward to seeing more of you in the future. Be well. All right. Take care. Thanks for being here.